my name's Nathaniel. Um, I'll be reading for Bible for us this morning. Um, today's passage is Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 48. Um, I'll give you a moment to open it into your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be up on the screen behind me. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people had gathered to witness this sight, saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. It's good to be, good to be with you. Um, I'm very happy to be here, but I kind of wish I wasn't. Uh, because uh, the reason I'm up here today, my name is Mike Sams, if I haven't met you, is because Scott, our pastor, is in ISO. And so I'm sure he's spewing that he can't be here with us today. Um, so maybe, uh, you know, if we all um, bomb him text messages saying how much we wished, uh, missed him and his family uh, today, he'd appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, it's great to be here and spend some time on Good Friday thinking about what Jesus did. And we're going to spend some time thinking on those words that Ada mentioned and why Easter is so important. But also thinking about, did it really happen, this Easter thing? You're going to spend some time considering, is it a hoax? Or did it happen and did Jesus actually say those words? So let me pray and then we're going to get on thinking about it. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together today. Uh, whether we're here for the first time or whether we come uh, each each week, we thank you on this day we can stop and consider what happened on that cross 2,000 odd years ago. Amen. Let me ask you, um, have you ever been caught up in a hoax? Have you ever been caught up in some kind of prank or been involved in a prank? Maybe you're a prankster yourself. Well, I wonder whether this uh, prank that I, that I, I discovered recently, it, it's certainly my favourite. I wonder if it's one of the best ones that there ever was. Um, I'd love to show it to you, the, the video clip of it, but it's from the 90s, so it's a bit blurry, and it's in Swedish. And I'm pretty sure no one here speaks, speaks uh, Swedish. So I want to tell you about it, and I have a couple blurry pictures to show you um, about because it is ridiculous. Now, what you can see here on this screen, you can kind of see the guy on the right there. They're in a jet plane. And this guy is a famous scientist. And this guy is a famous scientist, and he's talking to the other guy that's on the plane there. You can't really see his face, but he, in the 90s, was very, very well known to people in Sweden. He was kind of like their, one of their number one sportsmen. He's like the Pat Cummins of Sweden of the time. Uh, he was a big soccer player. He played for Arsenal. Um, they're a big team. Not a great team. I don't like Arsenal, but they, they were a big team at the time. There's another picture of him. His name was Anders Limpard. Now, he was on this jet with this famous scientist, or so he thought. But as they're going in this jet plane, the scientist pulls out a paper, and this paper there, he's just got the paper. You can kind of see it. He's... he's it's the, one of the Swedish papers. It's a legit paper. But as he's looking, on, looking at it, it seems a bit odd because it's talking about a scientist who has discovered time travel. And the picture is the scientist in this jet plane. And Anders is thinking, what? This is weird. This guy's has he made up this paper or what's going on here? But then all of a sudden, there's a massive bang and the plane jumps up and down. It flashes and everything in the plane goes up and up into the... Uh, into the air and comes back down and the scientist says to Anders I think you have just participated in the first ever moment of time travel now this is ridiculous right this can there's no way he would have believed this but Anders is kind of a bit shocked by it but they really went in for a prank because what happened next was you had these massive roaring sounds. They got the military fighter jets, two of them. You can see them on the other side. You can see the fighter jets just there, literally on the other side. And they flew them on into the ground. And the military and all the dignitaries were on the ground there waiting to welcome and celebrate the fact that they moved two years forward from 1997 to 1999. You can see them being congratulated there. There's the scientists who you can't see properly. And in the next uh, picture, Anders is looking very miffed. If you watch the video clip, he's like, what has just happened? Is this true? But they went so hard, they got his wife involved and his wife was there saying it happened, but they did all this makeup. So she looked a bit older, her hair was longer and she had more wrinkles. And he's like, wow, she's looking older. But they went even further. Have a look at the next picture. You can't see what that is, right? You can see a little tongue maybe down the bottom. That is his dog. Now, his dog does not have any hair. It's one of those hairless dogs. Um, but they gave the dog hair extensions. <laughs> and so he bought it hook, line, and sinker. And the moment where we realized he bought it, he actually believed that they told him, what's the worst thing that could happen to Sweden in, 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 uh, in sport? Their rivals, Norway, win the World Cup. 
And they convinced Anders, their best soccer player, that in 1998 in Italy, Norway won the World Cup and he believed it. What a hoax. How ridiculous. What a crazy story. Now, the thing is, I wonder whether you've been caught up in hoax. I've had a not as crazy, I suggest, similar moment to that. Back in 2000, Sydney had the Olympics. And Richard Wilkins, uh, a journalist guy, um, on the Today Show, I think it was, said, uh, made this big breaking announcement on the news. This actually happened, that Australia had had the Olympics taken away from them because of corruption. And I believe that driving into work until, as I'm driving into work, uh, I heard the interview with him and how much egg he had on his face as he had this breaking news and he probably shouldn't have uh, launched with it because it was just totally false. But the thing is, these can be silly, funny stories as people put hair extensions on dogs. But has human history, in a big way, been caught up in the biggest hoax of all time? Did Jesus actually die and did he actually rise from the dead? So we're going to ask ourselves those questions over today and Sunday and consider the words that he said if he in fact did. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to suggest to you it's a good thing for us. It's good for our our soul and our minds to consider why do we believe these things and how can we actually have confidence in them? Because we don't believe things just out of like a leap in the dark blind faith. We have reasons to believe in them. And if you're a skeptic or just you're not sure what you think of this whole Jesus thing, I want to suggest to you that Easter this year could be a good opportunity for you to ask the same questions. Can you be confident in the reasons why you're skeptic and, and happy enough to investigate whether um, when you ask the questions that uh, Jesus did in fact die and rise, whether maybe they are possibly true but what we're not going to do over this time just to reassure you maybe is this this isn't going to be some kind of introductory lecture just because it's interesting and we're just going to tell you some facts and information because actually the reason we want to have confidence is because we want to land each day today and on sunday seeing why this event and what jesus said about it gives humanity hope why it changes everything. So if you're willing, let's do that for a little while together. And let's think about, first of all, this whole thing about did Jesus really die? Now, when you wonder the questions about it, you may have had these questions. You may still have these questions. Most questions about the reliability of what's going on can be boiled down to four things. These four things um, here... Um, it is from that picture there is from a from a book that I absolutely love this book it's called Cold Case Christianity of all the books I've read on the reliability of of uh the gospels it's written by a guy named Warner Wallace who was the skeptic of skeptics who was a detective he was a very well respected cold case detective he'd go and investigate the the, the um crimes that people couldn't solve and in his skepticism for some reason he decided uh, I think he was challenged to apply those skills to the Gospels and the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he went on this journey and then he, his life got totally turned around as he, as he wrestled with it. And he highlighted, you can see there, the four things uh, that often uh, that you can summarize where people challenge whether it's true or not. The first one there in the top left, you don't need to see all the, little, the words and details, it's just going to give you a, a visual. It just can't be verified. 
We can't verify this thing that happened for all sorts of different reasons. We just can't be certain that it took place. Or secondly, now, come on, guys, how could it possibly be accurate? Seriously, this thing is Chinese whispers, right? It happened so long ago. How can we possibly believe that it's accurate? And even if we're willing to entertain that notion, when we look at the writings, you know, we've got the, the Bible here and those gospel accounts. Here's the event. It happened here. But the timeline when they wrote them was over here. And it's so far away. How could we possibly trust it? These are the kind of questions people ask. And then the last one, and the one we're going to focus in on most today in that bottom right corner, maybe flick to the... To, um, oh, I'll actually leave it there for the moment, actually. Uh, thanks, mate. Is surely, surely... We need to think about those who are writing the events. They're the victors. They're, they're, they're telling history because they won. They're biased. How can we know the gospel writers, the eyewitness accounts, they're not kind of fudging it a bit to get what they want? See, that's a good question, right? And I reckon every single one of us who loves Jesus should have confidence in being able to address these questions and address whether it is just us being biased what if their motives just even a little bit got in the road and they lied what if they just had a brain explosion just to need to win the day because no one is completely objective we all have our biases and so before we get to the story of the cross and what jesus said today let's wrestle with this just for a moment so as I said, um, Warner Wallace investigated all of these things. And when he went to this question of the gospel writer's bias, he pointed out the three big things that you may well know as the reason why people um, uh, can be biased. And if you go to the next screen, I just narrowed in on them there. I think I did. Oh, maybe I didn't put it in. Oh, okay, that's all right. You can go back. I thought I did. Um, the three big things is that you're driven by financial gain. The reason crimes happen is because you want more money. You want, you want everything that goes with it. Or it's sexual lust and some kind of relational issue. And the last one, does anyone want to have a guess what the last one is? The big three? You've got money, relationships, and power. Driven for power. What if this is the reason why um, the gospel writers, one or all of these things, has meant that they've kind of just reshaped history a little bit? But the thing is, and here's one of the big takeaways that this is an introduction, and if you want to pursue it more, you can, you can actually borrow my book if you want, if anyone wants to do that, or uh, pursue it further. But the thing is, there is no evidence in any way that the Bible itself, or external evidence at all, that the gospel writers had ulterior motives. So we think about financial gain. The problem is that the Bible taught, and just over and over again, that to follow Jesus meant you gave up everything. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the, um, the letters in the New Testament, talks about how he, he gave up and those who did the work with him gave up everything. He went around to different places and worked in those places to make it up. They were not wealthy in any stretch. If we went back to the beginning of Luke's Gospel, what would we find? Jesus goes to those uh, to who will become his disciples and he says to them, right, I want you guys to follow me. Here is the financial package that I'm willing to offer you. Here's your superannuation plan and here's all. No, he doesn't do any of that. What Jesus says is, come follow me and I'm not going to pay you. Come follow me, put down your nets 
That is literally Jesus saying, put down the thing that gives food to your families, puts food on the table, and come follow me and trust in me, and we'll change the world around. That is what his followers and the gospel writers, that is the place of how they thought about uh, finances. And when it comes to relationships and sexual lust, there's really no external evidence whatsoever to consider this is what was going on. In fact, what actually happened when people decided to follow Jesus was a whole revolution in this area, where instead of a a context of the world where people would have lots of different relationships and inappropriate relationships and even many wives, the revolution that Jesus brought in was that actually having one wife and being in relationship um, intimately with one person was this massive change to society. And that's what the early Christians were wrestling with, as they were going, this is a really big change. And the letter of the Corinthians pointed this out, that they really struggled with this and were moving back and forth here. It was a total change. But lastly, the one that we should maybe be argued the most by skeptics, I reckon, maybe they were actually driven by power. Maybe the gospel writers, those early eyewitness accounts were driven by power. Because after all, if we look through history, it's a few hundred years old later where the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, became a Christian or whether he truly became a Christian or did it for his own political and um, uh, uh, power reasons. And there's lots of debate about that. But the reality is Christianity then did get into the seat of power and Christianity did thrive in that sense. And did receive significant amount of power and wealth. The Catholic Church, the only church of the time, really did have extraordinary wealth and power over the centuries. That's just historically true. But what actually happened early on when Jesus was there, when the gospel writers were sharing their accounts, was not power, it was persecution. All of those uh, followers of Jesus... Pretty much all of them were martyred, if not all, there's some that we're not completely certain about, but they all faced strong persecution just to even entertain the notion that Jesus is the one who gives life. They were working in the time where Emperor Nero, his ambition was to brutally torture and annihilate other classes and his hatred for um, Christians is well known and well documented. There is no reason to think that they did it for power. So the question I want to ask you on this Good Friday is, did Jesus actually die? Can we have confidence of this? Have you asked yourself this question? Have you just assumed, yeah, of course he did? Or have you think, oh, I don't know about it still? See, you, like me, may be thinking, ah, oh, that's not the issue. Of course he died. The big issue is whether he rose from the dead. And that is a big issue. We, we talk about that on Sunday. But many people throughout history constantly, it never goes away, century after century after century, suggest Jesus didn't actually die. Every Easter it raises its head. Jen, my wife's telling me there's another podcast coming out this Easter to talk about this very fact because people are still talking about it. In fact, It's one of the key tenets of one of the biggest religions in the world, Islam. Islam and Quran are very clear that Jesus didn't die. It was a scam. Just before he was about to die, somehow Jesus' disciples put him down from the cross and put someone else up there. 
It's very hard to see how we can just say there's, it's the same God, isn't it? When Christianity says the death and resurrection of Jesus is at the absolute heart and center of everything. But throughout the 1900s, in 29, 65, 72, 82, they were really big years where many scholars said, Jesus didn't die, he just fainted. And people keep saying it. And is this true? It happened in Australia. In, in the 90s, Barbara Thiering was a scholar who said, actually, Jesus didn't really die, he just fainted. It's kind of called the swoon theory, if you've heard of that before. And it just didn't really happen. Why should this matter to us? Well, I think because someone will probably say it to it at some point. Um, someone in the last couple of weeks mentioned it to me. I'm still, I don't, lots of people say he didn't die and there's good evidence for it when actually there really isn't. And there's a whole new age in this secular world that we live in of new atheists who say that it didn't happen and kind of make it as a flippant comment. And people are willing to just jump on board with that idea. Um, Richard Dawkins, who is... Um, an impressive academic in his field of biology, uh, but he would often say in an area that it doesn't have any expertise, he would throw the, the throwaway line, well, if Jesus did die, which I seriously doubt, and not, and not have any real reason to back it up, it is a real thing. But when we investigate it and we think through, we see that Jesus was flogged. And when he was flogged, it was brutal. Now, I don't know if you, you saw back, it was quite a while ago now, I don't even know when it was, but the Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson put together, there was lots of debate at the time whether he went too far or, or, or in, in the whole portraying of the brutality of it. Some people saying yes, some people say no, I don't really care about that debate. But what's not for debate, that it was brutal, that it was horrendous, that Jesus was lashed 39 times with a whip, with leather, uh, leather whip with metal balls on it, and it was excruciatingly painful. Sometimes it caused people to be critically uh, de- uh, at the point of death before they even got to the, the Roman cross. There were terrible effects of people being beaten. A journalist, uh, very famous in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, was uh, Lee Strobel, who did a lot of talk about whether Jesus, he wanted to investigate the reliability of it as well. And he spoke to a, an expert American doc, a doctor in the field of, of death. And he asked, him, he asked him what he thought about it. And he said he has no, no questions about Jesus dying because more than likely to his mind, for those doctors out there, Jesus would have... Uh, he would have faced hypovolemic shock. Now, we've got some doctors and nurses out there. What's hypovolemic shock? Anyone willing to stake their reputation on it? Loss of blood volume. Well, you can continue to be a doctor. It's all right. <laughs> Good on you, Karen. Loss of blood to the point of shock. This is what Jesus was facing. It was so bad that his body would have already been starting to fail before he even got to the cross. And some say, though, yeah, but there's a real problem with the accounts because actually on the cross they just used ropes. And that's true. Often they just did use ropes. And, and the, the accounts say that they put nails into Jesus. Now, they could have just done that one off to Jesus, but actually we've, we've found archaeological evidence that sometimes they did use it with others as well. In 1968, we found big nails attached to um, this kind of just barbaric execution. Did you know, I didn't know this until I started reading about this, that 
a word that I use all the time, maybe because I'm a big wuss and soft and so I have good reasons to use it all the time, but the word excruciating comes from this, out of the cross, excruciating. It was so painful to have nails put into your nerves in your wrist and to asphyxiate and to die from cardiac arrest because you cannot breathe anymore because you can't hold yourself up. This is what Jesus, our Lord of all, went through. And then sometimes people say, well, actually, maybe the soldiers who said that he died and, and shoved a spear up his side, uh, maybe they're just exaggerating it. Maybe they're just exaggerating it a little bit. But just think about that for a moment. If you're a Roman soldier and your job is to take someone out, do you reckon you're going to make sure you do it? <laughs> because if you don't, I'm pretty sure you're going to be facing the same problem. Their literal job was to make sure it happened. It's fanciful to think that Jesus didn't die on the cross whatsoever. Actually, I want to suggest if we continue to pursue it. And so it's good for us to just reflect upon that. And to think when someone asks us about that, that we have good reasons to talk about it. So, what's more important then? We could end now, and it was interesting. Maybe you found it interesting. Maybe you thought, Michael, sit back down. I've had enough talking about these barbaric things. But if we stop now, all we've really done is highlighted that today's a bad day, not a good day. It's not Good Friday. You see, what happened on the cross? So that question I put up on the screen is so important. What was Jesus doing on that cross? That's where I want us to land today. It's the more important thing. We need to establish that he did die. But why? Why is it so profound? Why is this a good day, not just horrendous? Look at what Jesus said. He's gone through all those things that we just kind of briefly sweep through. He's about to die. And look what he says in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Isn't that extraordinary? Jesus, at the point of facing all of this, looks out and he says, Father, forgive them. Jesus is offering life with him. Jesus is looking at those who put him there. Reflect on that a moment. Reflect on where would you be in the story if you were back there 2,000 years ago? If you were looking at the cross from whatever perspective, Jesus is saying to you, Father, forgive them. That is extraordinary. God himself in our place, offering forgiveness. It's a very hard to just let Good Friday be a day off if we're willing to entertain the notion that the God of all history, who creates all things, who all things were made for and by and through, 
who's facing such immense physical pain. Never mind the greater pain of facing the wrath of God for all of humanity's rejection of him, their sin. Cries out, I forgive them. This is truly a good day. He's offering humanity eternal life. That is what the cross has done. We can rest in that joy. Wherever you come today, wherever you're at, if you see Jesus on the cross and know him to be there and that those words are said, there is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can say, think and act in any way that he is not going to forgive because he is on the cross forgiving you. It is done. He has dealt with it. And so at that point, he offers us all forgiveness. And that's what actually was happening as Jesus offers that uh, forgiveness on the cross. So many people are around him responding in all sorts of different ways. And that's where we're going to end, considering these responses and considering ours. We had read about those two criminals. There was two criminals on either side. And isn't it extraordinary to see how those two criminals respond to seeing Jesus? It's extraordinarily how one of them's there. And what does one of them do? He, he looks at Jesus and he thinks, right, you, you're a fool. If you're so great, so mighty, why don't you save me and get me down from here? Never mind that he deserves it. And yet the criminal on the other side looks and thinks, I deserve to be here. I, I'm here for what I have done. I have no reason to demand anything from him. He does not deserve to be there. All I can do is cry out for mercy. And that's what he says, isn't it? He says to, to uh, Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the one who's offered forgiveness. Right then we get a literal example of what is happening for all of humanity or forever. Until he returns, we see this person cry out in a state of mercy with nothing to offer Jesus. He can't live a life of good works because all he's got left is death. And Jesus says to him, in verse 43, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. He offers forgiveness because he's dealt with what we deserve and we see it play out at that very moment where one rejects him and one says, I've got nothing, please forgive me. And he does. And he promises him life eternal. And there were many around who were also responding in all sorts of ways. There were the leaders, the Jewish leaders who spent their whole time. If you read the gospel accounts, if you read any of the gospel accounts, what do the leaders try and do? Prove he's a fraud. Try and kill him. They think, you beauty, we've got this guy. We've, we've managed to get him uh, to the point of death. They think, ah, oh, he's no Messiah. The very people that should have been pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah are saying he's a fraud. 
And people were swept up and sneering at him, stood watching and thinking, what a joke this guy is. His followers are devastated, thinking, how does this all play out? Because they haven't understood yet that there is a resurrection that we get to think about on Sunday. And people just thought, how pathetic. And those were hoping for a Messiah. Well, they, they thought that the Messiah was going to come and lead them into a glorious revolution against the Romans. And here is Jesus on a Roman cross. People responded very differently. And like that uh, criminal, there was even a Roman soldier who looked at what was happening and was blown away. In verse 47, we read, The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, I think it's up on the screen, there it is, Surely this was a righteous man. Jesus, who lived a life of perfectly obeying his Father, who was the only one to be perfect, took on the death for all of our imperfection, for all of our sin. And the Roman centurion sums it all up for us and reminds us that the one who offers forgiveness is the righteous one who gives us life eternal. I want to ask you today, where are you in this story? Are you still wrestling with the skepticism of it all? That's fine. I want to encourage you to continue to do that. uh, Talk with your friends. I'd love to chat with me. Borrow my book. uh, Come to our course where we talk about these things further, if you like. But I want to encourage you to continue to wrestle with it and to pursue it. But I want to ask you, where are you when you hear those words that Jesus says, Father, forgive them? Have you accepted them? Because what we don't want to do today is walk out just thinking this is no longer a kind of Anders Limpard level hoax. We want to walk out today thinking the God of the universe has forgiven me guaranteed and life eternal is mine when I turn to him. How extraordinary is it that that's our God? And we can have confidence because we know Sunday's coming and we'll reflect more on that. He is not a dead king. He is a risen king. But I reckon as we go out, as we finish our time together today, there's one good way to respond. He's offered forgiveness. So what should we do? We should acknowledge that we need it. And whether this is something that you do as a follower of Jesus, or maybe today it could be the first time for you. What a great day. You'll never forget this day if that's the case. The day when you saw that God has forgiven you and you can have life with him forever. And so I think what we'll do now is just spend a moment, if you choose to do that with us, we're going to acknowledge that we need Jesus, that we do sin, that we do turn away from him. We're going to ask for forgiveness as his people. And we're going to thank him that forgiveness is given as we've just seen it so beautifully on the cross. So on the screen you can see these words where we acknowledge that God is God and we go our own way and we live the way that 
we, we do, don't we? We don't live perfectly, and we won't this side of heaven. And as we see on the next uh, slide, we acknowledge that we've turned away from God and that the reality is, without Jesus, there is condemnation. And then to, to finish it off, how great is it that we can say these words, Father, forgive us, knowing that Jesus has already declared that he forgives us on the cross. And so we can say that with great confidence today together, uh, this word of confession. So if, this is, if you would like to uh, do that uh, with us today, I'm just going to spend, let's spend a moment in reflection, whether you are one who realized that forgiveness is given to you. And then when I say, let us pray, let's say these words out loud together with great joy, knowing that he has dealt with all our sin. Let's just spend a moment in reflection. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have gone our own way, not loving you as we ought, nor loving our neighbor as ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word and deed and in what we have failed to do. We deserve your condemnation. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbor and to live for your honor and glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.